Welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk to experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with doctors, dietitians, athletes, and various fields to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps we can take in the effort to shift towards a healthier lifestyle. My name is Stephanie Nishi, and today I am joined by author Jane Thurnall-Reed to talk about health, happiness, and well-being no matter your age. Jane is an independent author and blogger. She has been vegan for seven years and vegetarian for over 40 years before that. She writes about health and well-being with a focus on weight loss. She's in her 70s and loves inspiring others. She enjoys weightlifting in the gym, riding her bike, and eating healthily with, as she puts it, a dusting of vegan chocolate. Jane, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast today. It's such a pleasure to get to speak with you. I'm really happy to be here. So thank you very much for inviting me. To jump into things, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you were introduced to lifestyle health and plant-based practices and how it became a part of your life and practice. Okay, so I've been vegetarian. I first went vegetarian when I was 12, very unsuccessfully because I didn't eat the right things and so on. Um, And I finally became vegetarian when I was in my early 20s. But my version of vegetarian then was I was drinking a lot of alcohol, smoking a lot of cigarettes, eating a lot of toast (laughs) and chocolate and things like that. So then my diet was vegetarian. It wasn't healthy vegetarian by any stretch of the imagination. And in my late 20s, I decided I wanted to get pregnant. And and by then I'd realised that my lifestyle wasn't conducive to getting pregnant. It wasn't going to help me have healthy babies. And so I started to sort of clean up my diet and, and became essentially a whole food vegetarian. I mean, at that time, you couldn't you couldn't actually get any of the sort of mock meat and stuff you can get now. So if you were vegetarian, you had to make everything yourself because the, you know, the alternatives weren't there. And and that's how it was till I was in my 60s. And then I became vegan in my 60s. And um, so I've been I've been whole food plant based vegan for the last seven years. My journey's always been to do with the ethics of killing animals you know i i don't i don't want to be involved in that level of cruelty in the world but you know it's interesting how the views have changed because you know in the early days people kept on saying to me you know this isn't very healthy being vegetarian you know you need meat um you need to eat fish you know and and those sort of things um and in Eight years ago, I started going to the gym and working with a personal trainer. And, um, you know, he took my details and I said, I'm vegetarian. And there was a sort of sharp intake of breath. And, um, oh, you know, that's going to make things quite difficult. And I said to him, it's not negotiable. Even if I even if it means I'm less strong, the ethics of it is so important to me. And then when I went vegan, <laughs> two years later, <laughs> another another sharp, sharp intake of breath. But it's interesting to see how he and other people, their views have changed over the years and how 
very much more it's now recognised as being a really, really healthy diet, both for us personally, it's obviously better for the animals in that we're not killing and causing all that suffering, and also for the planet as well. I really liked how you touched on that there has been this shift in perspective, and there is quite a range of how people can follow a vegetarian or plant-based dietary pattern, but it sounds like you took it at the beginning and you made those changes along the way to find what worked well for you. And you mentioned that you didn't make some of these changes until later in life. So what Mm. would you say to someone who says, I feel too old to be able to make such changes? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I'm I'm completely and utterly convinced that you're never, ever too old. And, and the research is there as well, which shows that even if people make quite small changes, they can really benefit their health. And, you know, I'm sure my good health is, is you know, a large part of that. I mean, there's the two big prongs of that. Um, One is that I eat a whole food plant-based diet most of the time. I do eat chocolate. I do like vegan ice cream and things like that. So I I have what I call a 95% diet, which is 95%, you know, whole food, but still really enjoyable. And then there's like 5%, which is things like chocolate cakes, cookies, things like that as well. And then of course, exercise is really important. And we, we know the research on that is showing how important that is, particularly uh, particularly as we get older. And, um, you know, people say to me often, oh, you're really lucky, you know. And I go, what, what do you mean? And they go, oh, well, you're so healthy and so well and so energetic and all the rest of it. And I think it's not luck, actually. You know, it's down to the way I eat. It's down to the fact that I exercise regularly and so on. And, and I don't think it's ever – I mean, I never re- – I didn't really get interested in – going to the gym regularly till I was in mm, about 63, something like that, when I really started and just really loved it. (laughs) Anybody has seen your Instagram page, (laughs) they can see that you put a lot of effort into being healthy and encouraging healthful practices, among others. And I really like how you said small changes can have big impacts. And I believe you've mentioned this in some of your books as well. And to my knowledge, you've authored around 10 books today and with two recent ones. Um, So if you're okay, we'll chat a little bit about the one called Menopause Weight Loss, Live Well, Mm -hmm. Sleep Well, Stop Hot Flashes and Lose Weight. Yeah. Now, I realize that many people may hear the word menopause and they may think that it's not applicable to them, but this is a process that impacts many people, whether you are someone who has experienced it or may experience menopause, or you even know somebody who may has experienced or may or already has experienced this biological process. So I believe in your book, you mentioned that researchers from Austria conducted some qualitative research using questionnaires and found that women between the ages of 40 to 60 felt that, and this is a quote, if you don't mind me quoting your words in the research, um, that the menopausal transition is associated with an increased prevalence of eating disorders and negative body image. And menopause like puberty may perhaps represent a window of vulnerability to these conditions, likely because of changes in hormonal function, body composition, and conceptions of womanhood. And I was wondering if you can share with us how menopause is described as 
you define it in your book or how you view it in your book? And what was the aim of your book and your work in this area? Okay, well, the first book I wrote was about was weight loss tips and um and and what the science says not what some you know fluffy idea is about weight loss um but what what the science has shown to be correct shown to work and so on and while i was writing it i i kept on think i i thought quite a bit about menopause weight loss but it seems such a complex subject so i decided to i deliberately excluded it from the book but then when that first book came out several people said to me does it say anything in it about menopause weight loss? So I was like, I said, no. And they went, oh, I really want to, I really want some help with that. So, so then I started exploring it. And I think, I mean, my view of menopause changed as I was doing the research. Um, and what basically the book says is that if you want to counteract all the symptoms that women get in the menopause, um, then the best ways to do that is to eat well, which is basically eating, not necessarily being vegan or totally plant-based, but eating a lot more fruit, a lot more vegetables, a lot more fiber, drinking more water and so on, all the things that we would recommend to anybody of any age. You know, and then there's stuff about exercising, helping the menopause. Again, it's stuff we'd recommend to anybody of any age. Um, sleep, getting your sleep sorted out. That's been, you know, and so in the end, the book was almost about, you know, living a healthy lifestyle because that's the solution to a lot of problems, including a lot of menopause problems. I I had an email actually recently from someone who said that um, she hadn't completely finished the book, but she'd read quite a bit of it. And she'd managed to lose eight pounds in uh, the last two months, I think it was. And she said, um, you know, ever since I, I was menopausal, I've been struggling, struggling to lose weight and not able to do it. And I'd lose two pounds, put them back on again and so on. And, and, and I thought I was never, ever going to lose that weight. But I read your book and I've now lost the eight pounds. And, you know, it was really straightforward because I gave her a different way of looking at it. So, I, and I think, you know, I mean, I, didn't, I was 56 when I went through the menopause, so um, nearly 20 years ago now. But I actually didn't have a difficult menopause compared with most people. And at the time, I was like, mm, maybe I'm just lucky, that <laughs> amazing luck that some people seem to have. And um, But when I wrote the book, I started to realise why, because when I was 56, I was eating a diet that included a lot of fruit and vegetables and so on, included fibre. I drank a lot of water and so on. I took some exercise. I, I, I'd um, become a keen bike rider, so I was doing some quite long-distance cycle rides. So looking back to it, looking back at it, after I did the research for the book, looking back at it, I was like, oh, that's why I didn't have all the problems that my friends were having, because I had the diet in place and I was doing exercise and so on. I mean, there's undoubtedly some women who need help in the form of HRT, without a doubt. But but I think, you know, most women need to view the menopause. It's like messengers, you know, because, as you say, it's like a window of vulnerability. But what's happening 
is your body's just about coping coping with a not very good lifestyle, with a lack of exercise, with not enough sleep, too much alcohol or whatever. And it's just about coping. But then if you put the hormonal changes of menopause on top of that, you start to get symptoms. Now you can suppress the symptoms and get rid of the symptoms using medication. But actually what you should see these is, is messages from your body, your whole being saying, there's some stuff that's wrong with your life. And by fixing it then, as you go through the menopause, what you're what you're then doing is preparing yourself to age well. So as well, it's not just about sorting your your menopausal symptoms out. It's also about when you do that, if you then make those lifestyle changes, make the exercise changes, get your sleep sorted out properly and all the rest of it, then you're setting yourself up to have a healthy life. I mean, in Canada, a a third of over 65s have two or more chronic health problems, you know, and it's the same elsewhere as well. It's not just Canada. I mean, the UK is bad, the US is bad and so on, you know, I mean, and that can be a lot of misery and, and unhappiness for people. Whereas if women take that opportunity of the menopause and go, all these menopausal symptoms I'm getting are a sign that my life is out of balance. And then if they then do the work, make the changes, then then what they're setting themselves up for is, is joy and happiness for the rest of their lives. So it's a very different approach, I think, to most people's approach about the menopause. You know, it's, oh, I've got all these awful symptoms. Whereas my view is you should see the symptoms as a gift and as a part of a process for setting the stage for the rest of your life. I really like that. It sounds like it's a shift in the mindset. And you mentioned some data that in Canada, many people experience multiple chronic diseases. And I believe in your book as well, you mentioned some statistics from the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, also in relation to menopause and the symptoms I think it was, let me see if I can find it, about hot flushes or hot flashes, depending on where you are in the yes, world, yes. Um, which may affect 10 to 75% of women with menopause. And be- there's this range, and that's because it was seen that hot flashes have been reported by only about 10% of women in China, maybe yeah. around 20% of women in Singapore and Japan. In contrast, it was estimated that about 75% of women yeah. in the United States over 50 were experiencing symptoms. And that was showing that it maybe not exactly due to the hormone changes, and it may be more complex speaking to those changes that you mentioned in the lifestyle factors. Um, And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to this and what some of the greatest concerns you mentioned, weight management and weight loss and other factors that may be involved with this, or if there's specific approaches that you would recommend based on your findings. Okay. I mean, a lot of women do worry about weight, weight gain um, at the menopause, but, but there was um, an interesting Australian study which took a large group of women, and I can't remember how many now, and they looked at women who had an early menopause, a normal time menopause, and a late menopause. Um, 
And they looked at when they gained weight and they all gained weight at the same time. Now, if it was solely a menopause problem, you would expect the early menopause women to gain weight before the late menopause women, yeah? But but that wasn't what they found. And the professor who led the study said, menopause weight gain is a myth. I mean, she was absolutely adamant about it. And you see, if you believe that you've put on two pounds and you're in your menopausal or perimenopausal and you've put on two pounds and you go, oh, that's that damn menopause. You know, that's all my hormones doing this. Whereas if you if you don't, if you understand that that's not the connection, then you start to think, I've put on two pounds. What, what have I done? Oh, yes, I've started, you know, the kids have left home. I've started drinking more wine every evening because I don't have to worry about them or I don't have to go out in the car and pick them up later. Or, yeah, we got this new car and I'm just not, you know, I'm not walking anywhere. I'm driving everywhere. So you actually then see what the problem is. And then you do something about it and you lose that two pounds. Whereas if you see the two pounds as being to do with the menopause and hormonal, I can't do anything about it. So I'm just going to have to accept that this is what's happening to me. So but by saying it's actually not the menopause, it's about uh, lifestyle changes that happen around the time, that time, late 40s, 50s. You know, often, as I say, children leave home, so parents maybe start drinking more alcohol. Um, Maybe they go out for more expensive, high-calorie meals. You know, there's all sorts of changes that that happen to people around that time. So that's the sort of things that people need to be thinking about. Um, And then... I, I I don't recommend people go on diets, and I'm sure you don't, because it's just we know diets don't work. Um, so I, I sort of recommend various um, things that people can do to change um, the way they are. I mean, I think mindfulness is, is very good in terms of eating, um, helping you to be aware of what you're eating. Um, I love the variety effect which is some work was done in um, by a researcher at Swansea University in Wales. And uh, they got some people to decorate a Christmas tree. And while they were decorating a Christmas tree, they were given chocolates to eat. Uh, great. <laughs> a great research project. Very festive. And, yes. It's very appropriate to talk about it now. And um, one group, the chocolates were all identical. And the other group, the chocolates were different. Um, You know, it was a variety of different chocolates. So I don't know, not not centres, creamy centres, you know, different flavours and so on. And what they found is that the group where the chocolates were all the same, they actually ate less than the group where the chocolates were different. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you think of yourself, if you're looking at a, I don't know, a plate of, of donuts that all have different toppings on them or a variety pack of cookies or biscuits um, or a variety of chocolates. You you have one and think, oh, I wonder what that one tastes like. And you pick another and so on. So what comes out of this is if you want to eat less of unhealthy food, then you have less variety in your home. 
So instead of having, you know, if, and if you're trying to reduce the amount you drink, for example, um, so if you normally drink beer, instead of having like five different types of beer, you will just have one type of beer and so on. So it's actually, you are likely to eat or drink less of that thing if you don't have all the different types to try. Um, and it works the other way if you're trying to eat more healthily, more fruit and veg, then having a bigger variety, you're likely to eat more. And, and you know, you can use this with, with children as well, because um, if your kids don't like their veg, instead of piling up one lot of veg, you maybe put four different types of vegetables on their plate and then they're likely to eat more. If you've got teenagers and you're, you've got junk food in for the teenagers, then have one variety of one thing. Ask them what their favourite thing is, get that, and don't get anything else. They're likely to eat less of it. That's really bringing to mind the buffet effect back when buffets were more of a thing. Yes. You always go yes. and see like, oh, there's so much variety. I want to try it all. But Yeah. That's right. That's right. So so actually by taking away that buffet effect, um, you actually end up eating less of the bad stuff. But it, having the buffet effect for healthy foods that you want yourself or your family to eat more of, then um, you're likely to eat more. So I really like that because it works both ways. It feels really nice. Mm -hmm. You can use these things to your advantage too. And yes. I really liked how you said be reflective, or you alluded to being reflective mm. during, during times of change and thinking about, okay, it's not just the menopause that may be happening, but all these other things could be happening at the same time and just being like, okay, so what may I be experiencing and why could I be seeing the effects that I am? And there's a quote also from your book, <laughs> and this one is from the Harvard Medical School, where they say that if you want to improve your diet, change slowly and focus on nutrition. And they say, by the time you're 40, you'll have eaten some 4,000 meals and a lot of snacks besides. And to give yourself time to change, targeting one item a week, take a long range view. Don't get down on yourself if you so-called slip up or quote unquote cheat from time to time and don't worry about every meal, much less every mouthful, and your nutritional peaks and valleys will balance out if your overall dietary pattern is sound. So I was wondering if you could speak to this as well as it relates to making changes to dietary intakes. We've talked about the variety aspect and the transition process and how people can go about making changes in this way. Yeah, I mean, some people are really good at going from, you know, who are very black and white sort of people. I mean, what you know, I, I've met people who one day they're eating McDonald's and um, no veggies and the next day they're full on plant based vegan. <laughs> but but most people can't do it like that. And the problem also, if you do it like that, the the bugs in your gut are used to you eating um you know McDonald's and so on. So the so so the balance is adjusted for that sort of diet. So if you suddenly change it overnight, then you're likely to actually give yourself a very upset stomach. So it's it, it, in many ways, it's actually better to do it slowly. Certainly, I mean, when I was around twenty, I tried to go vet, uh, vegetarian again, having done it when I was twelve, and I went from um, I. I I actually saw a cow being killed and it was very, very upsetting. In, in, this was in Africa. I mean, it was shot with a, um, 
you know, shotgun. And, and I actually stopped eating completely for about two weeks. And then when I started again, it was like, okay, I'm, I have to become vegetarian. And, and I got in a right mess with it because I think looking back, you know, I went from a regular meat diet to doing that like overnight, plus all the drama and upset of the um, the cow being killed. And so my digestive and um, my, you know, the biome wasn't right for that sort of diet. So, you know, I got stomachache and upsets and stuff like that. Um, so I, I'm a great advocate of doing it slowly. I mean, I was talking to somebody at a party when I was like 26 and I was talking about it. She was vegetarian. I said, oh, I'd love to be vegetarian, but, I'll, you know, I explain. She said, well, you need to do it slowly. That's what you need to do. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I started doing it slowly over several, you know, I think it took me like a couple of months. It really made, you know, I was able to do it. And I think, you know, particularly as you get older, it's probably even more important to change your diet slowly rather than trying to do it quickly. I'm a great advocate, though, of people focusing on adding things rather than taking stuff away, you know, because immediately immediately you take something out of your diet. It's like, you know, I want it, I want it. I mean, when I was vegetarian, occasionally I'd go on a diet and I actually don't like cream cakes, but as soon as I went on a diet, it was like, I can't have cream cake, I want one. Like, but I never normally hate them. That wasn't my, you know, sort of my thing of choice. So, I mean, the things that I suggest people, what I suggest people do is when they're, when they're thinking about their meal, their main meal, get the veggies sorted out first. You know, add the veggies, think about the veggies, and then you add the meat or the fish or whatever afterwards and make sure you've got maybe half your plate full of different sorts of veggies. Um to drink water before before a meal, that's been shown a very effective way of actually losing weight. If you drink a glass of water um, about half an hour before before a meal, um, I also recommend people to add nuts every day. There's lots of evidence um, that nuts are really beneficial. I saw a, a study, a very recent study on um, Brazil, uh, not Brazil nuts, almonds. It was recommending 56 grams, which I think is two ounces of uh, almonds a day. And it was actually strengthening the gut wall and preventing leaky guts and all sorts of problems. And, um, you know, a handful of nuts, really nutritious, um, got lots of minerals in them and so on, and really tasty. So again, that's something, you know, when people are saying, I'm thinking of changing my diet, I say, okay, well, these are the things I would recommend. Start off by thinking about putting more veggies on your plate. Don't worry about the rest. Just put more veggies on your plate to start with. Uh, drink water before your meals. Add, add a handful of nuts. One of the interesting things about nuts is, you know, they have a very bad reputation because they're so high calorie and everybody goes, oh, I can't eat nuts. You know, they're not allowed. You know, they're so high calorie. But it's interesting because the research has shown that actually um, eating nuts every day tends to mean that you eat less the rest of the day. And so overall, you end up e eating fewer calories rather than more um, when you look when you take the whole day into consideration. So I'm very much in favour of adding things rather than to start with. And then hopefully people start to really en enjoy what they're eating.
I really like that message too. It's adding more of those high fiber and nutrient dense foods. And I feel like I could speak with you about fruits and vegetables, <laughs> whole grains, and especially nuts all day, because that's where I did some of my dissertation. Work oh, right. Okay. Yes. As well. <laughs> Along those lines, you briefly mentioned this before, but you have another book that recently came out titled 190 Weight Loss Hacks, What the Evidence Says. And the topics in this, you mentioned the microbiome recently, and you talk about the microbiome in this book, as well as willpower and mindful eating to plate size and color. And there's so many different topics in this area to consider when talking about weight management and weight loss. And I was wondering if there's certain areas that you think are chapters or topics that you either really enjoyed researching or that you think more people need to hear about because either the topic isn't included in everyday conversation or in maintaining a healthy lifestyle, it may be misrepresented. One, one of the most surprising things actually I found was there was some research on... Well, first of all, the research on willpower. Um, I, I mean, I think that's really in, interesting. And the research on willpower, because there was some original research back in the 1990s, which said that we have a limited amount of willpower. And so, you know, you, you say you're on a diet or trying to eat healthily, you manage through the day. And by the time it comes to the evening, you've run out of willpower. So at that point, you eat, you know, cookies, drink loads of wine, whatever is your favourite, <laughs> less healthy thing. Um, and it's because because you, you've run out of willpower. Um, now, there's two problems with that. One is it's been subsequently not proven to be true. The other, the other thing is it actually completely disempowers you because it's saying by the time you get to the evening, you can't do anything about it. It's just, oh, you've run out of willpower. So of course you're going to eat things. A lot of people tried to, I mean, there was huge amounts of publicity about that original research in the 1990s. Um, and of course, everybody then was like, well, no wonder, no wonder I can't, you know, I can't lose weight. By the evening, I've run out of willpower. It, it gave people just lots of justification for eating whatever they wanted in the evening. But a lot of people tried to reproduce that research and a small minority was successful, but most of them weren't successful. And the ultimate conclusion I think the research in this area has come to is if you believe that willpower is limited, then it is. So if you believe that you only have a certain amount of willpower, um, then you do only have a certain amount of willpower. But if you believe that you have willpower the whole day, if you wanted to use it, then that's what happens. So it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, um, your belief about how much willpower you have. And, you know, there's lots of evidence that what happens in the evening is because people are tired um, or people are, are getting quite mindless in that they're sitting watching a movie or scrolling through through uh, messages while eating something and not paying any attention to what they're eating. So I, th I think I think that's really interesting. That's a sort of I mean I've talked to quite a lot of people about that and they've gone oh right okay okay yeah okay that makes sense. And then there was a couple of other pieces of research that I found really interesting. One was that if you tighten a muscle, any muscle, 
it gives you it means you are more likely to be able to resist temptation so you know for example if you're walking along and you come to a mcdonald's and you want to go in the mcdonald's and have a hamburger and you think i shouldn't i shouldn't i shouldn't if you make fists or do something like that just you know tense any muscle you like then you're less likely to give in to the temptation so that's a really sort of interesting thing you can do like sitting in a restaurant if you're looking at the menu thinking oh you know i really want what do i want for a dessert oh there's a fruit salad i don't really want that what i really want is this you know ice cream da 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 with brownies and all sorts of things um then you can um you know you could squeeze your legs together really hard squeezing the muscles or whatever or put your hands below the table squeezing your fists and that helps to um helps with your willpower so really it's a really simple thing and it's not you're not you don't have to um use muscles connected with eating i mean you can do but you don't have to it's just tense any muscle and it's like it's reminding your body somehow that you've got willpower that you can do things that's what they think is happening and there was another bit of really interesting research on where people were given um were sent messages every day um text messages and the text messages were things like um listen to a hard rock um album today stand on one leg while you're cleaning your teeth wear something purple today take a detour on your way home and they were sort of really like random things that they were the messages each day's message and what they found was that people actually lost weight over overweight people actually lost weight and they said what it is it's like disrupting habits you know, if you always listen to classical music and you suddenly get this text message, listen to some hard rock or whatever, or country and western or something, you know, it's like your habits are being disrupted every day. Um, and some of the disruption is actually quite pleasant. You suddenly discover actually that you really quite like hard rock music or something, even though you would always listen to classical. So, and so without actually trying, people lost weight on it. It's a fascinating idea that just disrupting habits, not eating habits, that they, that, you know, the, the habits they addressed were, none of them were to do with actual eating. So it wasn't like eat, eat fruit today, you know, or don't eat a dessert. It was nothing like that. It was this sort of random uh, instructions each day. So it's sort of, I think both the both the tensing the muscle and this idea of disrupting your habits is saying to you, you have power in your life. You know, you can change things. And when once people start to sort of feel like that, then then good changes can happen almost automatically, almost without thinking. It's so curious how these strategies or these ways of doing things can disrupt, like you said, or can change the way we go about our day-to-day -day living and then have downstream impacts on yeah. our health. It's, it's so curious to it me. Is. It <laughs> is. 
Also, it brings to mind like there are so many things that we could potentially do that don't cost extra money, potentially, hopefully don't cost extra stress to us and that we can perhaps more easily incorporate into our day-to-day living. I know it can still be a challenge, but it sounds like these are ways that we can, if we keep them in mind, it's something we can think about as we approach things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, somebody wrote to me and said, you know, since I since I read your weight loss hacks book, I've lost, I can't remember how much, a significant amount of weight. And they said, with no stress whatsoever, it's just amazing. And, um, you know, another person said to me, I keep your book where I can see it. And every few days I read one of the hacks and then I go about applying it and I'm gradually losing, losing all my excess weight. So, uh, yeah. It's, you know, it's much better than going on a diet and depriving yourself of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know that doesn't work for the vast majority of people long term. Yeah, exactly. I really like it's just going back to what you said with the food um, changes. It's adding something that's helpful to what you eat on a day to day versus taking away. It's avoiding that deprivation mind process. Yes, yes, yes. And along the lines of willpower and individuals who demonstrate quite a bit of willpower, or at least in my mind, it came across this way. It's I saw a recent Instagram post on your page where you deadlifted, I believe it was 65 kilograms, which I believe is over 140 pounds for anybody in the United States. And I also believe you were doing um, an, a fundraiser for, was it the UK Vegan the Society? The Vegan Society, yeah. Yeah, and you lifted. And, and I did 77 and a half kilos, which I think is around 160, 180 pounds, something like that. It's yeah. incredible. How did you <laughs> get into the strength training and why do you think it's important to oh. share these achievements with people? Oh. I mean, I, 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 I was really unfit as a child. I, I, I like to tell people this because people always assume that I've always been fit and healthy. I hated exercise as a child. I didn't do any. In my t- 20s, I used to go to a swim pool and swim before work, but it was that heads up breaststroke, looking around, talking to people, you know, no, no aerobic effort whatsoever. I also went to a gym, but I only did, I I used to talk a lot (laughs) to people. So I'd be there for an hour, but maybe, you know, 20 minutes of that would be talking to other people in the gym. Um, I only did exercises that I liked, um, which by definition, almost are the ones you least need to do. If you like them, you know, it tends to be because they're easy. Um, and then I didn't do anything till my 40s. And then I met my current partner, who was a keen cyclist. And he taught, he actually taught me to, to, to cycle um, because I wasn't, you know, I was so unfit as a child. I never even learned to ride a bike. And then when I was in early, my early 60s, a friend of mine who was around about 30 at the time um, and who I used to cycle with sometimes, and she'd started going to the gym and she said to me, you should come to the gym, Jane. I went, oh, I don't think so, you know. She kept on and eventually she was going, you'd like it. And I went, oh, I'm not sure I would. You know, I'm a bit old for the gym, you know. Gyms are for young people, you know. I'm too old to go to the gym, all this stuff. Anyway, she kept on. So eventually I went and and I found I loved it. I really, really loved it. I enjoyed 
working out. And one of the, the manager of the gym rather took me under his wing and would always give me advice about what I ought to do and stuff like that. And it was always really encouraging. Um, and, um, and so I was beginning to get fit. And then we moved and I started in a new gym um, in Exeter, where we live now. And I decided I was going to work with a personal trainer. And I'm fortunate enough, you know, not everybody can afford to do that. And I'm fortunate enough that I can. And I found I really loved strength training. Um, I think part of the reason I've got a really active brain, you know, my brain's always whirring away. But when you're doing strength training, when you're lifting heavy weights, you actually can't think about anything else other than getting that damn weight up. <laughs> so it's a sort of, you know, it's a bit of a Zen moment when, when I'm weight training. Um, you know, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of just so special. And, um, and then somebody, this same friend said to me, I had coffee with her, this young friend of mine, and she said, um, I was talking about going to the gym and how, you know, since I've moved, I was doing much more and I'd started weightlifting. And she said, oh, you ought to put that on Instagram. I said, no. <laughs> and she said, yeah, yeah, you know, get some little videos, put them on Instagram. I was going, no, Katie, no, I'm not going to do this. Anyway, she sat there nagging at me and she's very good. She's really good at getting me to do things. So in the end, before we left, I left, I went, oh, okay. And... And I put the first video on Instagram and I was so nervous, you know, because I thought everybody's going to go, what's this old woman doing putting videos on Instagram? And I was greeted with such joy, affection, approval. I was amazed. And I've now been on Instagram for mm, three or four years, I guess. And during that time, I've had no negativity whatsoever. I've had young black guys call, calling me sister, Oh, sister, you know, if they comment on it, and it's, oh, that feels really nice, you know. Um, people in the US, people in Canada, you know, commenting. I've had quite a lot of people who've um, sent me messages to say, um, you know, my mum sits and watches the television and complains about her diabetes or her breathlessness or whatever. And, and I see you doing all this, um, you know, your vi little videos on Instagram. And it really makes me realise that there is the possibility of a different future. And so I've been surpri I'm surprised and very touched, how, you know, how many young people are saying, I'm not so pessimistic about getting old anymore. Now I see the sort of things you put on. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm getting stronger and fitter. You know, I can do things now that I wouldn't have been able to do 20, 40 years ago. Um, and that's an amazing, amazing feeling. Well, Absolutely amazing. <laughs> there, it's fantastic to be able to see this. And first off, thanks to your friend, Katie. I believe you said her name was for getting yes. on Instagram. Yeah. And thank you to you yeah. for providing this content, because I believe, at least to my understanding, you've become a bit of an ambassador for strength for individuals as we age and to show that mm. it's not all quote unquote downhill as people may think and that you just mentioned you're feeling like you're getting fitter and fitter yeah I am I, I mean I am without a doubt and it has all sorts of other effects um you know the, the statistics are that um half almost half of older people people over 65 
are afraid of falling. And if you're afraid of falling, then it means your world actually starts to get smaller because if you're afraid of falling, you don't want to go to new places. Surface might be uneven, even there might be stairs that you find difficult and so on. Oh, no, I won't go there. So your world starts to get smaller. Um, and, and also the irony is if you're afraid of falling, that actually almost doubles your chances of falling. So this half of the half of the over 65s are afraid of falling are actually doubling their chances of falling by being afraid of falling. And one of the best ways to get over and stop being afraid of falling is to do strength training, resistance training, weight training, whatever you want to call it, is to do some of that. I mean, not everybody wants to go to a gym. And I, I recommend strongly for people who don't want to go to a gym, there's a fantastic website called HasFit, H-A-S-F-I-T. What's heart, can... heart, and, heart and Soul Fitness. It's, so it's HasFit. Um, hasfit.com and they have lots and lots and lots of free videos that people can um, use they've got videos for people who need to sit down um, and, and, and exercise sitting down they've got um, videos for people who haven't got weights at home so they're using water bottles and things like that and they've also got some um, lots of videos for people who are strong and fit as well. So there's a whole range. I think they've got over a thousand free videos. Um, so I, you know, if you don't want to go to the gym, then I recommend that. There's some research from Australia which showed that strength training reduces your chances of getting dementia. Has a significant effect on that. You know, it's has it helps with diabetes, with heart disease, with all sorts of things. And of course, with osteoporosis too, everybody should do it. I mean, the gyms are full of young people training, but really, I mean, it's good that they're there, but really the gym should be full of older people working out. And my experience in my own gym is that people are really friendly. Um, you know, people say, oh, hello, Jane, how are you? How's your training going? You know, I, they, yeah, you know, I'm not ridiculed or anything. And, uh, a, a young woman looked over the other day and went, oh, my God, you're really strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's to try to make it a welcoming environment for all ages, or yeah. even if you don't have the ability or you don't feel comfortable in a gym setting, um, there's other resources such as this HasFit, which we can link yeah. in the show notes as mm. well. And it's about building up that resilience, aging um, to improve or prevent potential injuries, or you mentioned the fear of falling or the risk of falling and how all our organ systems as well are interconnected. So by exercising, we can prevent so many different chronic diseases. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just so important to, to exercise. Good for the mind as well. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, as, as people keep on saying, you know, if exercise was a medicine, I mean, you know, it'd be prescribed for everybody. Um, <laughs> yep, I've started, um, there's one physician in Toronto who on their prescriptions, instead of doing a medication, they'll write dietary or exercise prescriptions so that it becomes or it makes people feel like it's more legitimate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we we really need to do this. We need to give people the information. 
Um, you know, and it's not all... Um, I read some interesting research again from one of the Australian universities, which said that 3,800 steps a day, which isn't a lot, reduces your risk of dementia by 25%. Um, I was sitting next to somebody at a dinner um, and she was in her 70s and I told her this and she she looked at me and went, 3,800? And I said, yeah. And she said, I could do that. I said, yeah, you could. She said, I'm going to do that. She said, 25% less chance of getting dementia. Yeah. I mean, I sort of feel that ought to be up on every doctor's wall. You know, that sort of stuff should be written in big letters on on, on, on walls, you know, that because people, I think, still don't really re- realise how many of these chronic disease, you know, we, we use this phrase chronic diseases of old age. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's normalising them, isn't it? It's saying this is what happens when you get old, you get chronic these chronic diseases. But that shouldn't be normal. We should be, you know, what should be normal is different. I mean, if you look at the blue zones where people live to be 90 or 100 and they're eating well, they are exercising, they're part of a community and so on, um, you know, the typical uh, way that most older people are in Canada, in the UK, around, you know, in, in the so-called developed world. Um, it, it's very sad. One aspect that I believe you've brought up in your book and some other talks is um, role models and mentorship. And you've mentioned some individuals that seem to have been either role models, mentors, or just that little extra nudge to make changes in your life. And I was wondering if there's anybody in specific that you would like to highlight or if you would say there's certain ways that they've inspired you or if there's anything specific about role modeling that has been important to you. I think, you know, as I got older, I found it very difficult to find role models. You know, they the for myself um you know i remember in my i guess late 50s early 60s sort of looking at you know the role models that are around and there were these people with the so-called chronic diseases of old age who you know if you saw them they would want to talk about their ailments and their grandchildren you know for half an hour an hour or more you know and i'd be really bored um and, and I thought this isn't for me. And then the other was the uh, the other extreme were these sort of very glamorous women who were desperately trying to keep you know look amazingly youthful and glamorous and having their nails done and their hair immaculate and it all done in quite a young style. And and that wasn't me either. And so I feel a bit I've sort of ploughed my own track between those two because I, you know, I've never been that sort of super glamorous, heavily made up woman. And I, it didn't, doesn't sort of fit that I should now start doing that. But nor did I want to be this sort of boring, tedious woman who wanted to talk about, about her ailments and grandchildren. Um, so for me, I found it really difficult as I got older to find role models for myself. And so it's been, you know, when people say to me, you're a role model for how, I, how I'm how i going to be, or 
you know, I'm, I mean, I've had people say on Instagram, I'm following you because this, I'm going to be like you when I'm your age. You know, it's just, I mean, it just gladdens my heart so much because, you know, I couldn't find a role model that fitted for me. And I hope, you know, so, I mean, it sounds a bit pompous to say I'm trying to be a role model, but but I guess that is, um, it's a bit self-regarding, but, but, but that's what I, you know, that's the, what I get from people is that, you know, I'm this role model. So, so I struggle to still to find role models. But it sounds like you're venturing into something that's unique to yourself, but hopefully it won't continue to be unique to yourself as you continue to spread the message and promote quality of life aspects so that it's not chronic disease of aging, but just prevention of chronic disease in yeah. general. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And I understand that you have many other things. We've talked about some of your books. You also have a blog, your Instagram. And in each of these different endeavors, my understanding is that you aim to provide scientific information to the general public. And I was wondering, is there any scientific information that we haven't had a chance to discuss today that would be relevant or that you think would be important for our listeners to hear? Um, I'm actually now writing a book on longevity and healthy aging. I've started that. So there's, I mean, there's some really, you know, in a way, as I'm writing it, it's like, it's, oh, it's all the same stuff again. You know, it's the same stuff I was writing about when I was writing about menopause. You know, we absolutely, absolutely categorically know how to keep people healthy and we are absolutely not doing it um and i think it needs to happen at a government level as well as a personal level you know there's people for whom you know i'm fortunate i can afford a personal trainer i can afford to go to the gym there are people who can't you know there are some options for example stuff online and things like that but you know we absolutely need know what to do and and i my big thing is i think people should stop chasing simple solutions either in terms of drugs or in terms of a magic food or a magic supplement you know we need to look at ourselves in the round but at the end of that you know what what you have is joy um you know it doesn't people people think that I don't know, healthy lifestyles, sort of really miserable. But it's not at all. I mean, if you're healthy, you're likely to be happier for a start. Um, a good diet has a big impact on mental health, so it's easier to be happier. If you have chronic diseases, it's much more difficult to be happy. So, yeah, you know, we know you've just got to do it. Mm -hmm. Stop looking for magic solutions bit by bit one step at a time and yes. I really liked how you mentioned that there's so many different categories whether it's weight management weight loss menopause longevity the overarching messaging seems to be relatively consistent across the board for yeah. each of these and it's just okay how do we go about that and are we still looking at these specific pinpoints or specific topics can we look at it at a broader picture mm. so to speak and I know you mentioned that you've been very fortunate to be able to have a personal trainer, but 
if I've heard correctly, you give a portion of your earnings um, to other initiatives or group. And I, I was wondering if you could briefly speak to what sparked this and your goals and experiences with this. Oh, yeah. OK. Um, I give between 25 and 50 percent of my income away and have for a long time now. And um, I remember my accountant said to me once, um, he said, I love seeing you. He said, you, you know, that your business is always doing better. Everything's always working out for you. You know, you come in and you're always, um, you know, optimistic and so on. What's your secret? And I said to him, you know my secret. My secret is that I give money away. And he was like, oh. <laughs> um, and I, I, I feel very, I, I mean, I'm not religious, but I feel very strongly that if you hang on to money and if you worry about money, you'll always struggle with it. But if you, if you give it away, when you give money away, you're making a huge affirmation. Because what you're saying is more will come. And money has a lot of power in our society. So actually choosing to give it away is a hugely powerful message saying, I don't have to worry, more will come. And um, and I do find that happens. Um, I find that giving money away makes me very happy because I know I'm saving lives, I'm contributing to a better world. And sometimes when, you know, the news gets me down, as it does all of us from time to time, and you just think, oh, the world is so awful. There's so much bad going on. And then I start to think about the money I've given over the years. And and and, and it just makes me think, um, you know, I, I've made, I've actually contributed to the world being a much better place. Um, and so it gives gives me joy again. It's a, it's a joyful thing to do. Coming back to that happiness factor that you spoke yeah. about earlier. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering, I know we're getting close to time. Is there anywhere in particular that you would um, like to share any of your resources or ways that people can contact you or, or learn more about you and the work that you're doing, such as your Instagram or your blog? And we can put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, well, obviously, if you, I mean, the Instagram, I tend to do the gym videos, very short gym videos, showing me, showing you what I'm doing in the gym. People seem to like them. People say mm -hmm. I look very real because often, you know, my hair's sticking out or whatever. <laughs> you know, I'm not sort of, I'm not this glamorous woman doing it. Um, and, but I also sometimes post uh, pictures of vegan salads that I make at home, occasionally inspirational quotes and things like that. So that's on Instagram. My Instagram is at Thriving Jane. And, um, and then I've got a blog, which is janethernellread.com, where I write about um, health, well-being, uh, aging, weight loss, all that sort of stuff as well. Um and you can sign up there. I've got some freebies. And if you sign up, you also get, get sent an occasional newsletter as well. So, and then of course, there's my books, the way the, the, I've, I've written quite a lot of books, but some of them are very, very specific to specific groups of people. But the two main ones are the ones we've talked about to, uh, today, which is the 190 weight loss hacks and the uh, menopause weight loss. They're available on Amazon, both as eBooks, paperbacks and um, audiobooks. And I'm hoping to have my longevity book out sometime early 2022. Wonderful. Well. 
<laughs> and we can share all the available information in the show notes as well. And good, great, thank you. Jane, is there a final take home message that you would like listeners to hear? Never too late. Just do something. Start by doing something. You know, an extra glass of water. Go and get yourself a glass of water. If you're listening to this, go and get yourself a glass of water. You know, um, I don't know. Do some air squats. Walk up and down the stairs. Just immediately go and do something. And then just from there, just gradually add bits and pieces into your life. Jane, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast today and for sharing your time. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it too. This episode was hosted by myself, Stephanie Nishi, and Clint Stamatovic is our audio engineer. This podcast featured royalty-free music from freesound.com. A very special thanks to our guest, Jane Bernal-Reed, for speaking with us and sharing her insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate health professionals and the public on the evidence behind plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website at www.plantbasedcanada.org and stay up to date by following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org. Until next time.